data are not a story. A story is something you impose on the data. You can't change the data, but you can tell very different stories. That insight informed the rest of my career as a clinician. Even more importantly, and I had no way of knowing at that early stage of my life that I would even become a scientist, that very same lesson applies equally well, if not more so, when you're doing research. Hi everyone, I'm Becky. And I'm Rohit, and welcome to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors and leaders outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories about how they got to where they are today. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of After Office Hours. Today we had the absolute pleasure of speaking to Dr. Robert Lefkowitz. Yes, Dr. Lefkowitz is the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of Medicine and a Professor of Biochemistry, Pathology, and Chemistry at Duke University. He is also an investigator in the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and has been at Duke for over 40 years. Dr. Lefkowitz most notably was a winner of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2012 for studies of G-protein coupled receptors. It was super exciting to talk with Dr. Lefkowitz, not just about his interest in research and in medicine, but also just all the funny stories and experiences that he's had along the way. Yeah, Dr. Lefkowitz is a great storyteller and it's clear that's something he's very passionate about to the extent that he actually wrote a memoir very recently. Yeah, he published his memoir titled A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm, which you can order on Amazon. And it goes into his experiences starting from when he was a kid um, growing up in New York and all the way through his research career and what he does today. Absolutely. A lot of our questions and conversations are based in stories that occurred in the book and things that we read. Uh, both of us read the book and really enjoyed it, so I highly recommend you check the book out, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Dr. Lefkowitz, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, we have a bunch of questions, and we are really excited to jump in and get to know you a bit better. Both of us read your memoir and we, we loved it. But in, in the memoir, you talk about some of these valuable lessons you learned from scientists throughout your career. Who would you say is your favorite scientist of all time? Um, either someone you've met in person or just someone from history? Well, that's, a, that's a very tough question. First of all, let me say, uh, because uh, you mentioned it, I want to hold up my book, which I recommend to, to students. I think that uh, whatever wisdom or amusement you find in today's conversation, you'll find a lot more of it in the book. It's called The Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm. You can get it on Amazon or anywhere else. Okay, so my all-time favorite scientist. Hmm. That is a, uh, a, a, very, a very tough one. I've had scientific heroes uh, in my career, but I can't say that I actually have one uh, favorite uh, scientist. And also, of course, as I think about it, one can distinguish one's favorite body of science uh, from one's favorite scientist. Correct. So, for example, uh -huh. uh, if I had to think of what was probably the most important biological uh, discovery uh, of my lifetime, I would have to say it was the determinate the, uh, the double helical structure of DNA. 
Right. So that's probably my favorite piece of science. But you wouldn't say Watson and Crick are your favorite? Exactly. I think Watson is a rogue. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think he's, you know, gotten himself in all kinds of trouble by being very impolitic. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, he seems to be kind of a, a strange guy. Uh, he's now in his 90s. I actually know him fairly well. Oh, wow. Uh, so there's a case. Now, Crick, I didn't know very well, uh, but he seemed he seemed like a really outstanding uh, model for a scientist. Uh, but so I'm just uh, just sort of distinguishing between uh, admiring the science and admiring uh, the scientist. Well, absolutely. I think that's a very fair and honest take. So diving more into your early days as a scientist, you mentioned in your memoir several mentors you had, including your father and other clinical and research mentors. Of those early mentors, whose advice do you find yourself thinking on even today? Again, a very uh, interesting question. What I l learned is, is to not build any one mentor into any sort of uh, godlike or myth-like figure, mm -hmm. but rather to sort of take from each one what seemed valuable to me. And so some of the uh, mentors that I had, even for very, very brief periods of time, uh, were some who taught me uh, some of the most valuable lessons that I learned. For example, in my memoir, I talk about the very first time I did clinical work as a medical student. Mm -hmm. And I rounded, I made teaching rounds with a professor, a clinical professor at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City named Dr. Mortimer Bader. And uh, I was only exposed to him for a month. That was it. Never spoke to him again after that. Uh, but on rounds, uh, really the very first day, uh, we, one of the students, and we were all very green, uh, it was our first experience on the wards, presented a case. And after some discussion, he asked us, uh, he asked me in particular, whether I could present the same facts of that case, but tell a very different story. And I was totally flummoxed by the question and couldn't respond. So we ran around the room and nobody could do it, not even the interns and residents. Mm -hmm. so, he so he demonstrated that. Uh, and then he taught the lesson, you know, basically the facts didn't change, but his emphasis changed, the order in which he presented the facts changed, and they led to a rather different diagnosis, which it turned out was the correct diagnosis. Uh, but the lesson I learned there, and, and he actually said it explicitly, was that data are not a story. A story is something you impose on the data. You can't change the data, but you can tell very different stories. And that insight uh, informed the rest of my career as a clinician. Mm -hmm. However, even more importantly, uh, and I had no way of knowing at that early stage of my life that I would, I would even become a scientist, uh, that very same lesson applies equally well, if not more so, when you're doing research. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I learned that data are not a story. Uh, story is something you impose on the data. Uh, and given a certain set of data, you can arrange them in a paper in many different orders mm -hmm. uh, and tell different stories, which will have more or less impact. So there's an example of uh, a guy uh, who I can't, I guess he was a mentor. It's hard to really call him that just because it was such a short exposure, but he taught me a lesson. Uh, then when I was at the NIH during the Vietnam War, and we can talk more about that later because it had a huge impact on my career, uh, I had two mentors and they couldn't have been more different from the point of view of personality. One was a brilliant, extroverted, creative, enthusiastic. Uh, I mean, you just, you know, talking to him was like drinking uh, an espresso coffee or two. <laughs> the other guy was much the opposite. He had very dour, uh, soft-spoken, uh, you know, I have to believe equally creative, but uh, in general, you walked out of his office, you know, really feeling like you needed a cup of express. <laughs> uh, but he was very critical. So typically, I would go into the first guy's office to show him some data. He'd get all excited. Everything was like uh, off the wall, uh, excitement and this and that, uh, very little critique. Then I go to the next guy, show him the same data, and I say, you know, Jesse was the first guy was really all excited about this. He says he was excited about this. I'd say, yeah. He said, well, did you do this control? I'd say, no. Did you do that control? No. Did you do any control? No. He says, how can you be excited about this? This is nothing. This is garbage. And I'd, I'd leave with my tail between my legs. Uh, but I took something from each of them. Mm -hmm. One is the importance of uh, enthusiasm, energy, excitement, uh, free flow of ideas, et cetera. The other is that that has to be married to the utmost rigor uh, in evaluating findings. Uh, and in my own mentoring style, I have uh, very much attempted to fuse those two. Uh, now, where it gets difficult, and of course one faces this all the time, is when the two instincts collide. Uh, so uh, often somebody, a trainee will come into my office, say, Bob, I'm all excited. Look at this finding. This looks like such and such and so on. So I look at it and I know in the moment that their interpretation is incorrect, that their excitement is misplaced, uh, but they're so happy uh, in that moment, right? So now what to do? I mean, I don't want to bring them crashing down uh, the way my second mentor did with me. Uh, I want to keep the, I want to fan the enthusiasm and the excitement. On the other hand, I don't want them going down this road because it leads no, nowhere good. Uh, so that's a tough one. You know, you, have to, you really have to thread that needle sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to touch a bit more on the quote you, you said from uh, your one of your mentors about how data itself isn't a story and you need to, to tell that story. Uh, it's clear from, from, from the, this viewpoint that being a successful researcher and a clinician involves a great deal of creativity. Do you think that this creativity can be learned? And if so, do you have any advice as to how to develop this creative intuition to tell that story, to make meaning out of data? So again, an excellent question. Uh, 
Do I think creativity can be taught? What a wonderful question. I have to say my view is that creativity can be encouraged and developed. But I think as with a lot of other human attributes, we're all born with a certain, uh, let's call it CQ, creative quotient, okay? <laughs> sure. uh, so it's almost like, and this is true I think of almost all human attributes. You're born with a set of genes and you've had early experiences, which for almost any attribute uh, are gonna set the parameters for what you can do, okay? Uh, within those limits, you could be at the low end or the high end. But to be at the high end, you need development either through mentors or practice or training. I'll use the analogy of sports if I can for a moment. So throughout most of my adult life, I was an avid long distance jogger. Never ran a marathon, but I enjoyed uh, distances up to half marathons. I was totally devoid of talent. Uh, but I was uh, very uh, committed and, and, and would run 30 to 40 miles a week. And I did wow. this for decades, decades. Uh, but I, I couldn't run very fast. Uh, I had a friend uh, who had been a championship athlete uh, in, uh, in New York State when he was in high school, set a number of records uh, for swimming distances. And now he was a professor of medicine at UNC. Sometimes when I would go out for a long run on the weekends, uh, he would join me and we would go 10 or 15 miles at a very slow pace, at my pace. Uh, anyway, uh, this guy could have run circles around me, but you know, we were, just, <laughs> we were just jogging and talking. Anyway, at some point he hurt his back and he didn't run or do any exercise for a couple of years. Uh, I kind of lost track of him. Then one weekend he called me up and he, he said, are you going out for your usual long Sunday run? Mm -hmm. I said, no, as a matter of fact, I'm running in a 15 kilometer race in Durham. He says, oh, uh, he says, can I register right on the spot? I said, yeah. He said, well, maybe I'll join you. We'll run together. <laughs> but I, well, but I thought you hadn't been running. He says, I haven't. I said, well, have you run at all? He says, no, this will be my first run after the back thing. I said, you mean you're, the very first time you're gonna run after two years of completely laying off, you're gonna run a 15 kilometer race? He said, yeah, it's no problem. He says, I'll be able to do it. Anyway, long story short, we went out. We ran the first couple of miles together at about, it was a hot, it was on, uh, it was Labor Day, yeah. It was hot and humid. And Imagine Durman, Durman the exactly. summer. Exactly, <laughs> oh, it was terrible. Uh, so the first few miles we ran together at about a seven and a half minute per mile pace, which for me was flat out almost, uh, and he was fine. Uh, and finally, I felt he was kind of trying to pull away, but he was too polite. So I basically said, well, you know, am I holding you back? He says, well, sheepishly, he said, yeah, kind of. He says, I, I could go a little fast. I said, well, go ahead, knock yourself out. Off he went. When I finished the race, my tongue was hanging out and I almost had to walk, you know, it was so hot. There he was drinking a soda or something. He had run the entire race at about a six to six and a half minute mile pace, wow. uh, which is insane. I'm not capable of that. So my point is that 
if these are my limits, low end and high end for, here's what I would do if I have no training here at maximal training. His limits are over here, okay? That is to say with no training, he still can do more than I can do with maximum training. The same thing is true of creativity, okay? You're born with a certain creative spark, but just like athletic training, it can be developed, okay? But not necessarily to the same level as that other one over there. Uh, so the question is, how do you develop it? Well, I think several ways. One, you apprentice yourself to somebody who's very creative and you just kind of absorb the sparks that they throw off over a period of time. That's what it means to get a PhD with somebody or do a postdoc with somebody, et cetera. You're an apprentice. You learn by watching and doing stuff with them, okay? Uh, they can't explain their creativity to you. They can't write it down. I often tell people that if something's really important, you can't read it in a book. Uh, the really important things like, how do I be more creative? You just have to sort of watch somebody. Uh, the other thing is people have their own individual ways of encouraging creativity. Uh, one of mine is through humor. Uh, I believe that, uh, and you've read my book and you saw all the funny stories in there, and they're just a sampling of what goes on in my lab meetings all the time. I find that humor is a wonderful uh, prod to creativity. Uh, it, uh, now, why that should be so, I don't know, but in, uh, although I have some ideas about it, I mean, in my lab meetings, there's a lot of laughing, a lot of laughing. I'm always saying things that uh, people find amusing and they start to laugh. And I find the more people laugh and relax, the more creative they become, the more ideas that go flying around the room. Now, why should that be so? Well, humor is basically a a very creative enterprise. Uh, and it involves the same essential processes that are involved in science, scientific discovery in the sense that every time you see the joke or understand why something I'm saying is funny, you're putting together several elements and seeing a relationship, which a second before you did not see. Mm -hmm. So seeing the joke, seeing the humor in a situation is essentially a tiny little discovery that you make in that moment. It, it's sort of freeing up your associations and et cetera. Well, that's just what scientific discovery is all about. So I do think that the more one uh, uses humor and thinks about situations in a humorous way, it's funny because most people think I'm fairly funny, but I never tell jokes, okay? I just <laughs> see, situ I see situations you know, in a different way, which of course what scientific discovery is all about is just sort of looking at the same data and seeing it differently. So if you get into the mindset of looking at things in a different way, or almost going into every situation, knowing that however most people are going to look at this, I'm not going to look at it this way. I'm going to force myself to look at it from this angle rather than this angle. And that's all part of the humorous process. I mean, it, sort of looking at life and Saying, hey, I mean, you know, you just look at it differently. So I, for me personally, there's no one right way to be creative, but for me, humor uh, is a very important element of the creative process. And I, not all, uh, but a lot of the very creative scientists I know are very funny.
Well, I really love that. And also, as you were speaking, I was sort of reminded about, I've watched some lectures by like Richard, Dr. Richard Feynman, and, you know, he always talks about looking at things in the non-conventional way, right? I mean, just doing things so differently from other people. So that's sort of what I was reminded about when you were speaking. He's well, also a very funny person, Dr. Richard Feynman. <laughs> well, that's interesting because in the preface to my book, uh, I talk about the fact that uh, his book, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a bestseller to this day, 35 or whatever years after he published it and long after his death, uh, that his uh, book was really the inspiration for this in that I had been telling all my stories to trainees and anybody else who would listen and even some who wouldn't uh, for <laughs> decades. Okay? Uh, and uh, people had always been telling me, Bobby, I need to write these stories up. I never would have, but then uh, a fellow named Randy Hall, who had been a postdoc of mine in the 90s, he's now a professor of pharmacology at Emory University, came to me and he said, look, why don't we sort of emulate that Feynman book where he just told his stories to one of his former trainees who was by then a professor. Uh, and he says, you know, I'll record your stories. I'll write them up, uh, you edit them. And we'll, we'll try to do something about surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. So that was really the inspiration. Uh, but I think, I think his, uh, you know, offbeat perspective is exactly what I'm talking about here. Having an offbeat perspective on things, you're invariably going to see things differently. And that is the essence of discovery. Wow. And perhaps this is a little bit touch related to the next question we wanted to ask you is, you know, anyone who sort of knows anything about your career, it's clear that you've dedicated such a large portion of your life and your energy to research and to what you're passionate about. But what makes you feel, or how do you stay grounded and what makes you feel renewed? What advice would you have for people who, uh, young people who want to keep that level of intensity over you know, a long period over their career? Okay, that's a very good question. Uh, I think one aspect of it uh, is to build your career, if you can, if you're fortunate enough, around something you truly love, okay? Uh, because if you're really in love, I mean, you, you're generally going to stay in love unless something goes bad, right? So if you love the science, uh, that is certainly a wonderful thing uh, to do. Another thing, of course, is family and friends. Uh, and I have five kids and grandkids, uh, wonderful wife. Uh, so, uh, you know, family is very, very important uh, in keeping you grounded. Uh, and I, not for a moment will I deny that uh, I, over the years, have had uh, a tendency to drift off uh, into uh, sort of outer space. And a perfect example of family and grounding is, is this little vignette. So when my five children were growing up, uh, I made it a point, no matter how busy I was professionally, to always be home by say 6.30 so that the seven of us could sit down to dinner together. And we would always have dinner around this very crowded little table. Uh, and uh, it was not unusual during dinner uh, for me, for my mind, you know, as I was trying to bring my head back from the lab. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting, before I came to Duke and my whole independent career has been at Duke, 
I was in uh, Massachusetts at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, and uh, it was, I lived in Natick, so it was about a 45 minute drive uh, to both ways. And I found that was a good transition time because uh, I was doing a lot of clinical work and uh, it was very intense. And that 45 minutes was a good time for me to sort of decompress and move my head from the clinic or the lab where I was also working to home and vice versa. But here in, in Durham, it was like eight minutes. Okay. So by the time I came home for dinner with the kids, my head was still back on, you know, what went wrong with today's experiment. Uh, so often during dinner, my mind would drift. And of course, the family could tell that. So the refrain that they developed was, Earth to Bobby Joe. They would say, Earth to Bobby Joe, Earth to Bobby Joe. Bobby Joe was my Southern moniker because my name is Robert Joseph, right? Uh, and this is the South, right? So <laughs> Bobby Joe. So the kids would say, Earth to Bobby Joe, Earth to Bobby Joe. Uh, and that would remind me, wait a minute, you're not in the lab, you're sitting here with your five kids. Uh, you know, get your head in the game. Uh, so that's an example of how family, I think, can sort of ground you. Uh, Alas, uh, I developed very few hobbies, uh, none actually, other than reading, uh, because of my uh, passionate uh, engagement in the scientific things that, that I was doing. Uh, the one thing that also has helped me to keep me grounded was uh, physical activity. So as I told you, throughout my life, I was a long distance jogger. Uh, and spent a long, a lot of time doing that. Uh, now at age 78, uh, I really can't jog outside because of various orthopedic things. But over the years, I've equipped the basement of my home as a gym. So I have four different aerobic machines. Uh, and uh, in fact, just last week, I had to purchase a new treadmill. Uh, because the other one was uh, 20 years old. I bought it new uh, and uh, needs to say all the warranties had expired and I basically beat this thing into the ground. Uh, so uh, my warranty apparently lasted longer than the treadmills. I'm still here. So I got a <laughs> but I have four machines. I have an elliptical, a treadmill, an upright bike and a recumbent bike. Uh, and then in another area of the basement, I have a big universal weight machine. Uh, and I spend an hour in my gym uh, every day. Uh, and that, that really helps, uh, you know, it uh, clears my head. And uh, so that's very useful. Uh, do I have some regrets uh, about not having developed hobbies or had more time to, or made more time uh, to read more widely? Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, sometimes, you know, I get a lot of questions uh, when I do sessions like that, people say, well, what advice can you give us about work-life balance? That's a typical question that I get. And my answer is always the same. You're talking to the wrong guy here. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to argue that, that I'm a role model uh, in that regard. Uh, but uh, if you were to ask me, or if I asked myself, if I had to do it all over again, you know, that's the standard question now. Here's, here's the old geezer uh, who did all this amazing work, you know, and I was reflecting back on his life, you know, would you do it? You know, you have some regrets about that? Sure. Uh, if you had it to do over again, 
would you uh, would you do it uh, differently? And the most honest answer I can give to that is, I imagine not. Uh, and you might say, why why not? So I, I'm reminded by one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite uh, philosophers, Woody Allen. Have you ever heard of Woody Allen, the comedian? I have, yes. Yes, yeah, okay. a great philosopher I've heard. I've heard. <laughs> so uh, he, he was being asked about regrets in his life. And his response was, I only have one regret, that I wasn't somebody else. Uh, so that's a hell of a regret. Uh, so, but I don't regret who I am and who I was. And so I have to assume that if I was given the chance to live my life all over again, I would do it exactly the same way because that's who I am. And, and the only way that I would have lived a more balanced life is if I was somebody else. But I'm not, and I don't really want to be anybody else. So uh, I really think that, uh, yeah, I do it all over the same way, even though there, there are some downsides to that. Amazing. Yeah, that, that's, that's very good to hear when reflecting back that you are confident and happy with the, <laughs> the decisions. This is the way, this is who I am. It's the way yeah. the good thing made me. And, you know, it's like anybody else. There are some pluses and there are some minuses, and you got to accept the total package. Uh, on the same note of looking back and thinking how things would have been different, does part of you ever wonder what, what your career would have looked like if you hadn't, uh, in your book, you mentioned that you would sneak off to conduct research as a fellow. Um, if you had, hadn't done that and stayed, you know, following the rules as a practicing physician, do you ever uh, wonder what that career would have looked like? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I, uh, you know, my first love was medicine. Uh, as I talk about in the book, by the time I was eight years old, I knew I wanted nothing but then to be a doctor, a uh, practicing doctor and a cardiologist. Uh, that I think was probably dictated by the fact that my father uh, and my mother had premature coronary artery disease. So uh, I think I have a pretty good idea what it would have been like to practice medicine. I think I would have enjoyed it very much. I think I would not... I never would have dreamed that there would have been anything uh, when I was younger that could have taken me away from the full-time practice of medicine. Now, fortunately, I was blessed to be able to uh, engage in clinical medicine almost as a hobby and clinical teaching for most of my career. I've stopped making rounds about 10 years ago. but So I was still able to do some of that. But it was not the kind of intense uh, clinical practice that I had sort of dreamed of. And of course, I think the question is, well, what was it that could have displaced such a strong calling uh, to the practice of medicine? And I'll tell you what I think. I think, it, I think that I had a creative instinct, uh, which I first began to realize at the NIH as I fought my way through a lot of failure in the lab, I think I began to appreciate that I had a creative instinct or urge that I would not be able to fulfill in the practice of medicine. Now, the practice of medicine is to me uh, about as wonderful a thing as you can do with your life. I mean, the notion, and I, I you know, people, often say to me, you know, I, I didn't just go to medical school like a lot of MD-PhDs do and then go into the laboratory. I, mean, I did the full 
ticket. I mean, after medical school, I did three years of residency. I did cardiology fellowship. I mean, I, I was a board certified uh, internist and cardiologist. Uh, so I did it all. And people often say to me, well, given all the years you spent training in clinical medicine and given the way your career turned out, do you regret having spent all that time on clinical work? And my answer to that is no, not for a minute. Uh, I can't imagine a greater privilege that one could have than to be a physician, to be quite honest with you. Just think, I mean, the idea that you can alleviate human suffering on occasion, and on occasion even save a life, I mean, how does it get any better than that in terms of feeling that you've contributed something? So yeah, not only don't I regret it, uh, I feel uh, so fortunate to have had the experience for at least some years of being very intensely involved in clinical medicine. But then you say, well, given you feel that way, what is it that could have pulled you away? And I think it was this creative instinct, the idea that you know, in medicine, in the practice of medicine, you need to do things according to a certain standard operating procedure, okay? And there are uh, standards of care, they're called. And as long as you use the standard of care, they can never come get you for malpractice. But if you do something a little off kilter, a little different, you're at risk, especially if it goes south. So it's a totally different ethos in Clinical practice, you're fine. The goal is to do it like everybody else does it, okay? If you do it like everybody else does it and in the accepted way, you're good. Right. In research, if you do it the way anybody else does it, you're confirming somebody else's data and you got nothing, okay? So you couldn't have two more opposite you know, approaches to life. And I think what happened to me was I just realized I mean, I wanted to write the new story, not always be going over the old story. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is the only professional regret that I've had in my life was in the late 70s to about 1980, I got sucked into co-authoring a textbook of biochemistry. It was the very same textbook I had used in medical school, okay? And I was like only 37 or 38 years old at the time. Oh, wow. And, and several professors who were authors of the book came to me and, you know, really recruited me in. And I was so honored in this and that. But, you know, the fact of the matter was, I was not a biochemist in that sense. Uh, and this was an authored book, not an edited book. And I was the junior man. So I got assigned 20 chapters, uh, which I had to essentially write de novo because the material, they, they sold me a bill of goods based on the fact that, uh, well, all you have to do is update the chapters from five years ago. Uh, I, I was recruited in because the guy who wrote all of the so-called physiological chemistry had passed away. Well, when I got into it, I realized that he'd been kind of dogging it for several editions and the material in the book was totally worthless. It was like 25 years out of date. There was no way I could bring it up to date. Okay, I needed right. to start with a blank page. I mean, the whole structure of these chapters was, so I had to spend 
two and a half years of my life working on that book. Uh, and again, the idea of having to just regurgitate somebody else's stuff as opposed to publishing my own papers. Yeah, I didn't enjoy that at all. I kept up my, my own lab work throughout that time, but it was a, a very difficult time for me. I had to invest so much energy in that. So I think, again, it all comes down to uh, the creative instinct and how that sort of pulled me deeper and deeper into the laboratory. Speaking of what you find most fulfilling about your research, how does it feel to have conducted research or have made discoveries that have had such a far-reaching impact? Is that what makes you fulfilled or is it more of this curiosity and creativity related aspects of the lab? And you guys ask great questions. The, I think the fulfillment comes from day to, the day-to-day figuring things out. So it's all about the curiosity and satisfying one's curiosity. Uh, And one of the interesting things about basic science or fundamental research is you never really know for sure going in what the implications will be. I mean, at the far extreme, let's say you're doing real clinically oriented, uh, patient oriented research. And let's say your project is to find out whether drug A extends the life of patients with a certain cancer. And let's say you find out that it does and you publish that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know exactly what the implications of that are. That this, right. that, but when you do the kind of work that I was doing, which is basic research, you're driven not by a, a desire to create a new drug, a new therapy, cure a disease. You are simply following your curiosity generally about some interesting biological process. Now, what one knows as a physician scientist is that almost any time you figure out some basic biological problem, uh, it's gonna have some therapeutic implications, even though you don't know what that's gonna be. I never dreamed when I got into my work uh, that I was gonna discover a family of a thousand different receptors and that they would become uh, the targets of about a third of all FDA approved drugs, that's 700 drugs. Uh, And the interesting thing is, I mean, I got into medicine because I thought it was the most wonderful thing to be able to help people alleviate suffering, et cetera, maybe save a life on a rare occasion. But, you know, the reality is that if I had practiced medicine uh, throughout my life, uh, you know, maybe I could have touched the lives of a few thousand people, but the research has touched the lives of, who knows, tens, hundreds of millions of people. Uh, So, you know, at an intellectual level, I think about that and I kind of say, wow. Uh, But then I I can't really wrap my hands around. Uh, I think there's a little bit of that imposter syndrome. Well, maybe it was somebody else, not me, you know, whatever. Uh, But it, it is extraordinarily gratifying. Incredible. And, and when you are doing this, this level of basic research and discovering and working on discovering something that's never been even thought of before, there's this high risk, high reward, right? Yes. Um, and, I'm, and I'm sure throughout uh, your career, there's been a lot of times where you failed and, and you had to learn lessons from that and, and keep going. Could you tell us about a time where you uh, had one of these failures and, and what lessons you took from that? Yeah. So uh, when I went to the NIH uh, in 1968, I, I went there 
because I had been drafted during the Vietnam War. Uh, and many of us uh, did not want to serve in the active war theater, but uh, you pretty much had to spend one of your two years. All doctors were drafted. Not, it wasn't like the, the lottery draft for men over 18. So it was conscription, we all went in. Uh, so I didn't go to the NIH uh, where I was assigned from, by the public health service because I wanted to learn how to do research. I, I went there because it seemed like a better option than Vietnam. And by then I already knew that I wanted to be not just a clinician, but I wanted to be a clinical professor and teach people medicine. And I had been told by somebody that, you know, it didn't hurt to have a, some kind of research credential. So it seemed good. To that point in my life and career, I had never failed at anything, nothing. I was always top of my class, uh, whatever I tried, even in sports where I completely lacked athletic talent, by dint of hard work and practice, I could pull myself up so that I would be sort of in the upper third of whatever sport it was. Uh, but for a year, at the NIH, I toiled on a research project, complete failure, got nowhere, and I just didn't know what to make of it uh, because I had never failed at anything in a sustained way before. Uh, and so I concluded that uh, I was no good at this and made arrangements so that a year later at the end of the two year hitch, I would go back to finishing my clinical training. During the second year, Finally, things started to work and I got a, a taste of what it could be like to make some discoveries and publish my first few papers. But that first year to year and a half at the NIH was unmitigated failure. <clears throat> and I remember having lunch one day with a guy who was not one of my two mentors, but was a senior scientist who worked down the hall in our branch. And he knew I was very down about the fact that nothing was working for me. And he said, Bob, he says, do you have any idea what fraction of things experiments work for an average scientist? I said, no. He said, well, it's probably about 1%. He said, but do you know what that percentage might be for a world-class scientist, maybe even a potential Nobel laureate? I said, no. He said, you know, it could be as high as 2%. Uh, and in that moment, I appreciated what he was saying which is that if you're gonna do research, it's 98 to 99% failure, no matter how good you are. But you have to learn that every experiment teaches you something. As they say, if nothing else, it teaches you one more thing that doesn't work. Uh, and uh, one of the most wonderful experimentalists I've ever known uh, was one of my postdoctoral fellows uh, from the 80s named Brian Kobilka. He's now a professor at Stanford. He's the fellow who shared the Nobel Prize with me. And he just has this amazing perseverance and creativity in terms of figuring out just how to make things work. Uh, and one of his mottos is, there's always something else to try. Uh, so you never run out of ideas to try. Uh, so the key then, of course, is, is having a good hypothesis. Uh, but you know, you talk about uh, high risk, high reward. You know, to state what should be, I guess, obvious to everybody, for a scientist, there is no more important decision or set of decisions that you make in a career than what am I going to work on? What's my problem? In the moment you decide what it is you're trying to do or accomplish, in that moment, you pretty much set the upper limit 
of what you could possibly accomplish. I mean, if you choose to work on something trivial or not very important, then even though you're 100% successful, accomplish all your goals, so what? The problem was trivial, and so the answer will be trivial, and nobody will care. On the other extreme, if you choose to work on, you could choose to work on something very important, very fundamental, but unfortunately not tractable, at least to you. In other words, you're not capable of figuring that out. Well, that's an equal failure, right? So the key as a scientist is to learn how to choose if this is at this extreme, we have things which are very easy to do, very low risk, but very low reward because they're trivial. And at this, things that are just mind bogglingly important, but nobody can do them. You gotta learn to work as far in this direction as you can without falling off the cliff. In other words, to pick something which is as fundamentally important as is possible, but it's still something where you, you personally, have a valid chance of figuring it out. Now, how in the world do you learn to do that? Comes back to mentoring, same thing. Nobody can write it down, nobody can tell you. You spend three, four, five years working with me and over and over again, you'll see what I choose to pursue and what I choose not to pursue. And if I choose not to pursue something, I'll generally tell the people in the lab, this is why I don't think we should go in this direction. Either it's too trivial or it ain't trivial, but I just don't think we can crack it. And, you know, I'm not going to be right all the time. And much of the time you, you can't know because there's the road not travel. You just don't know. Uh, but, you know, some people have a better track record than others. And, you know, you come to the, to the end of a career and uh, you can look back and you see some people made better choices than others. Yeah, that, so that's that's really interesting. To sort of jump on sort of a slightly different line of questioning, question related more to our current situation with the pandemic. It's clear that you love telling stories and part of telling a good story is being an effective communicator, either as a clinician or a scientist. And as you know, during sort of the pandemic, this, is, this role of a physician has been catapulted to high importance, this ability for a physician to communicate well with the public. So in light of the ways that these certain roles have been defined and the role that uh, physicians across the country like Dr. Fauci have, do you have any thoughts on what scientists in your eyes could have done better during the pandemic? Well, uh, yeah, I think we've learned some things. I mean, <clears throat> one of the things I think we've learned uh, is just how prevalent uh, science denialism is, how, what percentage of the population just seem to not believe in science and don't wanna take seriously uh, the advice of the people like Tony Fauci uh, that everybody should be following. I mean, there are figures which I believe that had the population at large followed and were they now following the guidelines for masking and social distancing, et cetera, the number of lives that could have been saved is just uh, mind-bending. And that those kinds of things have become uh, political issues uh, is just mind-bending to me. The other thing is I think for young people contemplating careers, uh, I think there's a new appreciation of people who are physician scientists because all these talking heads we see on CNN and all these stations uh, are basically physician scientists. Uh, like Tony. Now, Fauci is a good friend of mine. Uh, we uh, were at the NIH together. And in my book, we have a picture 
you probably saw me and Tony, uh, and we've known each other and worked on various issues together for 50 years. Uh, we were in literally in the same class. We graduated medical school in 66, two different medical schools. He from Cornell, me, me from, uh, from uh, Columbia. And we both went to the NIH in 68. Uh, and uh, Tony has become, rightfully so, I mean, sort of the face of physician scientists and the face of, uh, you know, fighting the pandemic. And is just a remarkable guy. I mean, he is just the guy that you see, but that's inspired a lot of budding physician scientists. And apparently the number of applicants to medical school this year mm -hmm. is so far beyond anything they've ever seen. I mean, it's just off the charts. Uh, I suspect that will quiet down uh, after the pandemic. But I can tell you from my own point of view, I, I cannot imagine a more gratifying career than that of a physician scientist. I mean, you, you sort of have it all. Uh, Absolutely. And so as we wrap up looking in the forward direction, it's, it's absolutely inspiring that you're still have that sense of curiosity and, and are still looking forward for the next discovery. What are you, still out to accomplish and what what is what is next well that's a that's a, again a wonderful question sometimes i wonder about that myself there's no doubt that though i you know at 78 i mean i'm not even two percent retired i mean i'm basically running a lab of about 15 or 18 people and i'm banging away at it i can't say i have quite the energy that i did when i was uh, a young buck uh but i still got plenty of energy uh and at this point, one of the things that I, it, it's funny, one of the things that has characterized my own research program and has characterized those of the other scientists that I, contemporary scientists, or even those who are no longer with us, that I have admired most is that rather than jumping around and working on a bunch of different things, they chose a problem uh, which was so fertile, so fecund, so rich, that for decades you could pursue it ever, ever deeper, okay, uh, uncovering more and more layers uh, that you couldn't have possibly dreamed were there at the beginning. Uh, and that's what we're basically doing. Uh, we don't have time to go into the details, but you know, I always make the point to trainees, please do not build your career around any technique or any set of techniques. Because if you do, you'll have a short career because techniques are always being supplanted by new techniques. And so currently we are applying uh, the latest biophysical techniques, things like cryoelectron microscopy, uh, various kinds of spectroscopy, which I had never even heard of 15 years ago, uh, to answer questions that were raised by research that we did five years ago or 10 years ago. And in fact, I was telling somebody just the other day, and this too characterizes some of the careers that I most admire. You can take virtually every experiment going on in my laboratory today, trace it back to an ex experiment from last week, which gave birth to this experiment, and then back and back connecting the dots. You can go right back to July 1, 1973, when I opened my lab here at Duke with ev without any jumps. In other words, it's just been following. Now, of course, what happens is that the trail diverges 
right? I mean, you start with one problem and now you have two, three, five, 10, 20. Well, I can't pursue all of them. So I, I, I've always been sort of uh, chopping off what I consider the center cut of what are the most important things that are coming from that. But that also leaves lots of other stuff for other people to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I think that uh, trying to apply the latest technology to answer the questions uh, that come out of our most recent experiments is where I'm going. Uh, and much more so than at, at an earlier time in my career, and I've seen this happen to other careers late in the game, uh, I'm interested in more translational uh, aspects that is actually developing new kinds of drugs. Fascinating. Um, so just for time purposes, we are gonna have to wrap up, but as we finish, uh, there's two questions that we like to ask all of our guests at the end of the podcast. Uh, the first one is, if they have any book recommendations, but I'll, I'll, uh, on myself, I'll recommend uh, your book. Uh, I, Rohan and I both read and we absolutely loved it. Uh, is there any way you could tell our listeners how they can find it and, and, and yeah, they should look up? I think the best way, the book is called The Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm. It's got all sorts of uh, amusing stories, but also some serious ones and also touching on aspects of my own life. I myself am not just a cardiologist. I am also a cardiac patient. Uh, I have a strong family history of heart disease. So I think you'll find it inspirational at many levels. And probably the best way to do to get it is to order it on Amazon, because uh, then you can have it in a couple of days. Uh, and I, some of the local bookshops have actually sold out. So I think the best way to get it is on Amazon. So I think this is a, a, a good way to learn about what it's like to be a physician scientist. Gotcha. Wonderful. Well, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be excited to order that. Um, and then the final question is sort of unrelated, but um, what are your coffee or tea habits? And if so, what is your go-to? So uh, I drink uh, about close to two quarts of coffee a day, but only the first mug in the morning is caffeinated. Okay. Interesting. The rest is decaf. I mean, can you imagine if I <laughs> talk to me for an hour? Okay, if I was fully caffeinated. So you see me through this, I've been uh, sucking down, who knows, my sixth or eighth mug of the day of uh, a nice dark, bold decaf coffee. Uh, so that's, that's my, my favorite beverage. When I was younger, I used to drink a lot more caffeinated coffee, uh, but I think I you know, was at risk of sort of spinning out of control. Uh, <laughs> still did that. That's very fair. Wow, that's the, the secret to success, huh? Six, yep. six cups of coffee. Amazing. Wow. Okay. So, Dr. Levkowitz, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. This was an awesome conversation. Um, we really appreciate it. My, I enjoyed it very much, and congratulations to both of you for uh, for doing this podcast. Wow, what an absolute pleasure and honor to talk with Dr. Lefkowitz. Yeah, Dr. Lefkowitz, he's super funny, he's super great at telling stories, and it's just clear talking to him now how passionate he is about his research and um, all of the work he's done throughout his career. Yeah, I really appreciated how Dr. Lefkowitz was so candid throughout the entire conversation, and the analogies and connections he made with Dr. Feynman and sort of like the offbeat approach to critical thinking really resonated with me. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and on that same note, I really enjoyed his comments on creativity and how he believes it's a crucial part of being a scientist. It's sometimes hard to see that as a young scientist who is kind of in the weeds of memorization and understanding basic principles, but it's really cool to see how Dr. Lefkowitz really utilizes creativity in all of his uh, unique and interesting research. 
yeah and i think it's honestly like a really inspiring message for for us and for anyone else who reads his memoir so along those lines uh like we've said several times throughout the podcast if you would like to get his memoir it is called the funny thing happened on the way to stockholm it was great you guys can get it on amazon and that's a wrap everyone uh thanks so much for listening as always Feel free to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts at After Office Hours. Please drop a review and make sure to check us out on Instagram at After Double Underscore Office Hours. See you guys next time.